Good morning. We're in a series where we're considering supernatural intrusions into the natural world. The reason why we're doing so, Jesus' miracles are windows through which we can more clearly see who he is and who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And this morning, we'll consider his very first recorded miracle. You have your worship folder. There's a sheet in there. See what it says in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We read, on the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' first miracle was at Cain in Galilee. Israel is divided into two parts. You don't need to see the specifics of this, but there is a northern part and a southern part um, that had been divided right after the reign of David when his son Solomon became king. No, I'm sorry, after the reign of Solomon, excuse me. Um, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel survived two very different captivities. The north went into captivity to the Assyrians. The Assyrians' strategy when they conquered a people was to bring other cultures in and effectually eradicating the distinctive culture of the area that they conquered. They didn't want that culture to continue to exist, so they brought other cultures to infuse cultures to make it an amalgam. And that's what happened to the northern kingdom. The Babylonian and Persians, they treated their conquered people differently. They conquered the southern kingdom in 586, and they allowed it to retain their cultural identity. And so, at Jesus' time then, you had very two very different religious cultures in the north and in the south. In the north, centuries of enculturation had relaxed the religious ties that bound the Jews to the law of Moses. They weren't as religious. They weren't as finicky about following on the specifics and practicals of the law. The center of Judaism was in Jerusalem, and that was way to the south. 
So they were a little more lax. Um, this wasn't the case in the South. There was no relaxation of religious obligations. The influence of faith and family was intact. Um, the disciples Jesus called were primarily from the North. In fact, 11 of the 12 of them were from the Northern Kingdom in Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, this was, again, somewhat distanced from Jerusalem. And the thing that caused these, some of these disciples in the north, that they also were associated with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was regularly calling into question some of the practices of ancient Judaism and, and the religious political leaders that existed there. He was always calling out the Pharisees and saying this or that. So they had had some time and over the course of time had kind of come to hold their Judaism with a more open hand. And so when Jesus took hold of their hand, they were able to follow him with a great deal of devotion. There is one individual, we've talked about him before, who is from the South. And he didn't experience the same distance from his religious moorings. And that created problems for him. We identify him as being greedy, and he was. But the individual who was from Kerioth, Judas, the man from Kerioth, he was from the south. Uh, anybody see anything here? It was one thing. It was, if you were from the southern part of Israel, close to the center of Judaism, to take hold of Jesus' hand, and follow him would create huge issues with family, with political leaders who lived around you. It was a little bit more lax in the north. Jesus' miracle, his first one, occurred at a wedding ceremony in the northern part of Israel, in Cana, and uh, of the Galilee of the Gentiles. But it says... It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Cana is about nine miles northeast of where Jesus grew up. So nine miles. You know, it's not a big trip, not a trip you'd make all the time. They had to get there on, you know, walk or donkey or something like that. But it was, it's a reasonable trip. The wedding ceremony, um, it must have been somebody who was a relative of Mary and her family. At this point, we don't know about Joseph. We don't know what happened to him. Last time we hear about Joseph is when Jesus was small, when he was 12. His mother and father took him to the temple, he said, and they took off. He wasn't with them. They came back to find him, and he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And from very early on, Jesus would talk about God being his father. And it says that after that time, Jesus remained in submission to his family. And that's the last we hear of Joseph. He must have passed on sometime before we pick up where Jesus left off and when he, he was about 30 or so. Um, anyways, the wedding ceremony, whoever it was, it began with the betrothal, which would have happened earlier. And then, as we'll talk, the betrothal, followed a time when the groom went and prepared a place for his bride to come back. And when it happened, when that place was finished, then what would happen, they would have a wedding ceremony. It would begin with a procession. 
in which the friends of the bridegroom would take the bride and escort her to the house where she would live, where she would then come to the bridegroom. They would have a party, a banquet, and that banquet would last uh, about a week. So this is what Jesus and the disciples walk in on. Mary was probably helping out, so it must have been somebody she knew. And Jesus and the disciples, they ended up coming. You can imagine with something that lasts a week, if you've planned a wedding, um, you're very conscious of not wanting to run out of food. And if you had a week-long celebration, you really didn't want to run out of wine. That's exactly what happened. And it, it's bad form to let the wine run out. Jesus' mother, again, seems to be helping when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they said to Jesus, they don't have any wine. Pretty straightforward, direct. Um, don't think she's expecting a miracle. You know, we saw the young Messiah, or if you saw the young Messiah, it might have had Jesus doing this or that. We really don't know if he did any miracles. None that we absolutely know about. At this point, he had done no miracles. And so when they said uh, they don't have any wine, she's not saying, so, you know, throw your hand over something and do a miracle. She had, no, that's not why she's telling him. He's the oldest. And she tasks him with some problem-solving responsibilities. There might be a little bit something more to this. Um, there might be some tension. Jesus had just selected five individuals to follow him. At this time, he was about 30. And what happened in Jewish education, if you get through the first two tiers of Jewish education in which you've memorized the first five books of the Bible when you were in elementary age. You get a little bit older. You memorize the rest of the Old Testament. Then between ages 15 and 30, if you're a very good student, you've done all this up till now, you sit at the feet of a rabbi. And when you come to the age of 30, at that point, you are in a position to become a rabbi of your own. And get your own disciples. Again, Jesus starts his public ministry probably when he's about 30. The time where rabbis select disciples. Most of the time, the disciples go to the rabbi and they request him to teach them. Jesus didn't do that. He went to disciples and asked them to follow him. That's a little bit strange, but anyways, Jesus not formally trained began to act like a rabbi and select some disciples. Um, and he is there with five of them. He's just selected five very, just right before this time. The wine supply depended on the gifts of the guests. And it might be that Jesus and his disciples, because of their poverty, they might not have helped out much with the wine, but drank some of it. And so we don't know. It might be... She might be suggesting that his, he and his friends cough up some money. You know, if you're going to attend the wedding, at least you can contribute some to what happens here. Um, we don't know how many people are at the wedding. At any rate, uh, Jesus' response to her is a bit frosty, a bit frosty. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, woman might seem like a term of disrespect, but it isn't. When Jesus speaks to his mother from the cross, 
He says woman. And it's a term not of disrespect. However, what does this have to do with me? It's a little bit frosty. Uh, literally, this statement is, what to me and to you? It's a Semitism. It's a, it's a way Hebrews expressed some concern about what was being asked of them. And it could mean one of two things. Uh, it could mean when one party is, un- is unjustly bothering another, the injured party might say, so you're, you're creating some problems. Hey, what to me and to you? Um, it implies some hostility. Come on. Um, it, it doesn't always imply hostility. It can imply some distance. It's when someone is asked to get involved in a matter which he feels is no business of his. He can say the same thing. What to me and to you? This is, this is your business. How am I involved? It, it implies disengagement. And I think it's in the latter. Jesus says, what to me and to you? Implies some disengagement. This is not my concern. Um, hmm. Hmm. Um, why would he say that? It's the gist of his response. There's no disrespect, but there is distance. We'll talk about that, but he ends up helping to solve the problem anyways. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, now there were six stone Water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and ends up that that's the really good wine. And why did Jesus respond? Why did he end up fixing a problem that he didn't think was his problem? We don't know. We just don't know. might be that he had a director from the Father do this. He hadn't done a miracle up to this point. And maybe at this point, he is directed to do so with however Jesus knew what the Father wanted him to do. What Jesus said, he said what the Father wanted him to say and did what the Father wanted him to do. Jesus didn't careen off on his own. He said only what the Father wanted him to say and did only what the Father wanted him to do. We don't know the exact mechanism, how he knew, but maybe this was the first time. He might be, son, I want you to solve this problem, and here's how. He might have had a point, and then he said, you know, okay, that's what I want you to do. However Jesus conversed with the Father, this would be a time where the Father ends up telling him to do some things that Jesus hasn't done prior to this time. I'm going to ask you to do some things that are going to draw a lot of attention to yourself. And Jesus doesn't automatically assume he's a miracle-working machine. But this time the father tells him to do so, and he does. Um, he turns the water into wine, and he does so quietly. And the thing is that is on Jesus' mind, his disciples are on his mind. When Jesus selects his disciples, when he's a rabbi with these as his followers, his students, he takes this responsibility very seriously. He has three years that he understands he's going to go to the cross and he understands he's not going to live a long time. Did he understand three years? Maybe. And what he knows is I need to do something that will establish a way for individuals in 2017 to know what I came to do and why. 
And what Jesus does, he doesn't arrange to deal with thousands and thousands of people. What he does, he pours out what the Father wants him to say to whom the Father wants him to say it. He develops a list of a cadre, cache of disciples, 12, then 70 beyond that, and about 110 beyond that. Um, Once he selects these disciples, um, things will change. We know that he has them on his mind because in the last part of the miracle, after he did the miracle um, with those who he had just called to follow him, it was really maybe a week, week and a half, we don't know, but it just happened. He said, okay, I want you, 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 and you. He has five of them at this point. They come along with him. This is the first they see him hanging out. John the Baptist tells them, I want you to go with him. He is the one whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. And they switch their allegiance from John the Baptist to Jesus, and now they're hanging out with him at this wedding. And then Jesus does the miracle, and it says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Once he does this, once he starts with his disciples, he doesn't go back into his family life in the same way that he was involved with his family before. Things change pretty quickly. As we'll see, if there were pictures of this wedding, with Jesus doing something, not everybody knew what he did. And his mother and Jesus is there, and he's with his rest of the family probably. And everybody's probably smiley. After this time, you don't see a lot of smiles in this family. Jesus and his family start to part ways. He has an allegiance to these disciples now, which is going to challenge his allegiance to his family. He takes this responsibility to develop 12 very seriously, and his family is not going to understand it. It's going to be a lot of pain. I think that's what Jesus meant when he talked about hating father and mother and family and fields and hating your own life. At this point, Jesus' life is his family. His father's going to say to him, I'm going to put you in a place where you're not going to be able to be as close to the family as you would like to be in order that I, you might do what it is I'm asking you to do. Um, look what it says in Mark chapter 3. When he called the five after this time with the wedding, he's going to call seven others and He's going to actually select a bunch of people who are going to follow him. Then he goes up on a mountain and he chooses 12 that he gives. Now he specifically, you are my rabbinical disciples. And this is what it says. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Listen to what it says. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Something's happened to this boy. Ever since he started to select those disciples, you remember it happened at the wedding? 
Remember when he was with those five and now he has 12 and he's always traveling around with them and we don't understand what he's doing, but he's not even taking the time to eat. And so they went out to take, he says he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He must have had a breakdown. Jesus responds and his mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. At that point, he is dealing with his disciples and they're inside the house and he hears that your mother and brothers are outside and, and they have come and what do you imagine he does? Jesus then, um, he answered them, for my mother and my brothers. Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What happens to the mother and brothers? You mean he didn't even come out? You did tell him we're here, didn't you? You did tell him that? And what did he say? He said, those are his mother and brother and sister. Hmm. Hmm. You know what? Sometimes you follow God's calling, and it gets in the way of some primary relationships. Sometimes it's more difficult, especially for Jesus and his disciples. It was very difficult. They had to walk away from family, even James and John, prior to this time. They left their father holding the nets. They were raised to take on the family business. Jesus said, come and follow me. And you know what they did? They followed him. But we we don't think about those who were left behind. And the father is there with a dropped jaw. Where are you going? Um, this wedding is one of the last of the smiling photos. Jesus' relationship with his disciples triggers a change in his relationship with his family. Um, his, his disconnection from his family is only the first step. Alienation from the leadership of Israel will follow. This is what Jesus is thinking when he says, Woman, what to you and to me? It's not my concern. It's not what I'm thinking of. My hour has not yet come, and we know what Jesus is thinking about. His hour, it's talking about his arrest and death. Look what it says in John 8. This is a little bit after when he, um, after this wedding, it's, again, all this happened in Jesus' life within years. Probably about a year, year and a year later, they said to him, therefore, where's, where's your father? Jesus Claimed to be the son of God. He said God was his father. And so um, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour is the hour of his arrest. Um, the powers that be will bristle. Not at what Jesus does, but at what he says. He claimed to be God. Again, what we see in the miracles is that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Some people indicate, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. Jesus Christ superstar questions that. You know, there's a lot of people that question whether Jesus claimed to be God. He did. He was killed because of blasphemy. That's that's clear. Um, they understand, furthermore, that as the Son of God, you know what Jesus is claiming? 
He's claiming to replace and supplant everything that they had heard prior to that in terms of how to connect with God. The, the, the rituals of Judaism, he says, those have been supplanted. Not that Judaism is bad. It isn't. What Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the... He, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the door through whom you enter into a relationship with God the Father, and he's setting aside those things that existed in whatever religion existed. Jesus claims to be the way to God. Um, and those who are in power at the time understand that Jesus is overturning the law God gave to the Israelites through Moses a millennia and a half early. They understand what he's saying. They understand the implications of what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I am the way to come to God the Father. And they hate him. They see this as treason and blasphemy. You know what? When we consider what's happening, it's fitting that Jesus' first miracle is a wedding. You know what they say? For this cause, shall a man leave? Leave? His father, leave his mother, leave and cleave to his wife. Who's Jesus' wife? You are. Churches. And he experienced these things. He left these things in order that he might cleave or join to his church. From this wedding, Jesus will move through family alienation toward the cross. He leaves his family in order to cleave to his wife, the church. Leave and cleave. It's, um, Jesus has, uh, when it says in John 14, when he talks about the reason why he comes and and what his mission is about, look what it says. But believe in God, believe also in me, John 14, 1 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is what Jesus says in the last week of his life. And so his disciples are troubled because they understand that Jesus is going to be leaving them. And what Jesus talks about is wedding customs. And again, as we've said, the way a wedding worked, there was a betrothal. And there was a time where you enter into a contract. The bridegroom and the father would go to the bride-to-be. They would arrange a dowry. And once this was transacted, they were husband and wife at that point then. The father and the bridegroom would go to the place where he would build and prepare a place for his bride-to-be. Once that preparation was done, then the groom would return and would get the bride. They would arrange the her to come to the place where the groom's house was, the place that he had prepared. She would stay somewhere. They would have the wedding party. The friends of the bridegroom would go to this 
woman, they would get her. They would bring her to this place and then would begin the marriage supper and then they would have the week-long celebration. Jesus, that's what this verse is about. And he is about to leave his disciples, those that he has left family and culture to embrace into his family. He is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. And his disciples are the attendants of the bridegroom. And what they do then, they take and gather individuals. And at some point what Jesus is thinking is when he returns, it will be like the wedding ceremony that existed. What what does that mean? And he's telling his disciples, I'm going to go away. And to those who were the beginning of the church, of which we are descendants, he said, I'm going to go away. And, well, look what it says. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. It's interesting. And what we talk about here, we talk about not only Jesus, but we talk about God the Father. And I think that's important because Jesus indicated that you've got to believe something before you believe in Jesus. I think it's possible to believe in Jesus, but not really to believe in God. What does it mean to believe in God? You think about that. What does it mean to believe in God? What it means is these things didn't just happen. God put the universe in place. What does it mean to be God? It means that you're all powerful. That's what it means to be God. To be God means that you can speak something and it comes into being. All this that come into being, God didn't have to pour things into a Pyrex bowl. You know what he said? When you're God, you can say, let there be light. Done. You ever thought of what it means to be God? What it means to believe in God? It means that you're not challenged by anything. If you're God, how can God be challenged by anything? Who is God's enemy? God created everything. Who can disturb God's plan? It can't be disturbed because what it means to believe in God is that, again, this is difficult to believe, but it's harder not to believe it. God didn't come from anywhere. He always existed. I want you to think about the universe. Think about the universe. Galaxies, galaxies, galaxies. I want you to start to erase things. Okay? Can you do that? Picture galaxies. I don't know how you do that. Stars. Maybe you're looking up at the sky. Start to erase things. Erase galaxies. Now you've got our galaxy. Erase the planets. Erase stars. You're getting close to R. Erase the moon. Difficult for us. Erase this planet. Erase the people. Erase the lands. Erase the seas. Erase the planet itself. What do you have left? Nothing. You have God left. God didn't come from anywhere. Nothing can challenge him. You know what Jesus says? Believe in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I think it's possible that we 
Don't let our minds think about what it means to believe in God, but that's what Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he says to us. I go to prepare a place for you. What is Jesus doing now? He's preparing a place. He is the bridegroom. And we are the bride, not just us. Everyone who calls on his name, he knows those who are his. And he prepares a place. And when it says, I will come again to take you to be with me where I am, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place? If I'm not going to come back, I'm not going to tell you. If I don't intend to come back, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to go and come back. Jesus told you, I'm going to go and come back. That's what he said. I am going to go and come back. And if he didn't mean it, he wouldn't have said it. And he goes on, and he goes, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that you, that where I am, you may be also. Uh, and that's where Jesus did what he did, to leave and cleave and to join himself to his bride, the church, and then to create a place where the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we don't know exactly what God's plan is with the Jews for right now. As we've said, it's like if, it's, if like there's a two-lane thing happening and, and God is signaling people in. And at this point, most Jews do not believe. There are some who do believe and they become those who end up being the first of the church made up of Gentiles, but there were Jews that put that together. And so once, and so you're Gentiles and you're Jews. So what, with the beginning of the church, which what ends up happening, he ends up doing this. For the time being, most Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're not supposed to. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're bad. It's because God hardened the hearts of his firstborn for a time. He took some of them out to be the beginning of the Gentile church. So here's what God's doing now. Come, 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 come. There's a time that God's going to go. That's enough. We don't know when that is. Could it be soon? I'm not sure. At this point, he's going to go. And his firstborn is going to understand. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. We have no idea. What we do know, God does not and has not wiped his hands of his firstborn. Um, and he, you know, what ends up happening, or whatever it is, they will understand, the Jews will understand that they were not forgotten. I imagine there will be miracles. It will be clear that they are chosen ones. And they will come and at some point when... And he'll say, stop. It's time. You know this wedding thing? It's time for it to start. He's going to come back, and he's going to take his church, Gentile and Jew. Come here. I've got to show you something. And there's going to be a wedding supper. And we're going to be there. And when Jesus is thinking of the wine and supplying the wine for the wedding of Canaan in Galilee, you know what wine he's thinking of, don't you? 
He's thinking of the wine we're going to experience at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what it talks about in, uh, actually in a, in a verse that was written down on a sheet that I don't have in front of me. It says in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb is ready. And that's what communion becomes. Look what it says, the last verse. Um, it's in when the night before Jesus went back to the Father to go to prepare the place. It says, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what he's talking about when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, he is thinking of um, that celebration. It's called by different names. It's the Passover feast that we will have. We'll think about what God did to bring us into his heavenly home to share that with him. You know what else it is? It's a covenant meal. Um, They celebrated covenants by having a meal together. So whatever that meal is, it's also a covenant meal. And Jesus indicates um, this is the blood of my covenant when he comes. Again, you know this. But there is an agreement. It's it's a new covenant, and we will celebrate the inauguration of that covenant. So it's a Passover meal. It's in our future. When he comes back, it's a covenant meal, and it's a wedding supper. And the wine's not going to run out. That's what Jesus is thinking as he supplies the first. He's thinking of the time when we're going to be there with him. And, you know, and so I'm going to ask worship team come up. Um, and as he is at that first wedding, and I think he knows what he's going to say, and he has, he, as he hears the language for a man shall leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife, uh, I think he's thinking of not what's going to happen at that time, but what will happen in the future. His arrest when his time comes so that he could leave and be cleaved to his church, and, and then there will be that celebration that exists on the far side. You looking forward to that? Looking for, it's not going to last just seven days. The meadow went to it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your plans and your purposes for sending your son so that we would be betrothed. And that's the state that we exist in now. The relationship is formalized. You've already indicated your intention. The dowry has been paid. It means that we are already your bride. And we are waiting for that time when the celebration comes, when we are not in this world, but when we're in your world when we're in the place that you will create as an eternal habitation. And would you help us to understand what that means? And then in light of the fact that for all of us, the best is in front of us. Um, Life begins with you and extends eternally. Would you help us to be good stewards of the time that we have on this side of that celebration? Would you help us get to know you better? 
Will you help us understand your promises? Put faith in them? And um, come together to be the bride you would have us to be? And we look forward to that time to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here it is. The rest of the notes have got to be here somewhere. A little music, please. <clears throat> Give me a second. I'm going to have to skim maybe. Maybe they didn't all come out. That's right. Let's close in prayer. No. Thank you very much. Um, we're good.